In the Ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius Merkaiser. There was recently an absolutely horrid event that occurred here in my home country of South Africa. Eight women were gang raped while they were filming a music video or some or other content that was being created in a village near a town called Krugersdorf. They were brutally violated. And this is a story that is just correctly, in a horrid way, captured the attention of the entire nation. And unfortunately, although this particular story, in terms of some of the detail, are particularly viscerally heinous, rape culture is entrenched in South Africa as it is in many parts of the world. Then we respond in ways that are productive and we also respond in ways that are not productive. I wrote an essay for timeslive.co.za in which I reflected on and engaged some of the responses to this gang rape that had occurred here in South Africa. And I thought I'd share it on In the Ring with Eusebius MacKaiser for many of my listeners who enjoy audio journalism more than print journalism, that's your choice. I will give you the content in the form that you prefer to consume it. And some of you may be listeners of mine internationally that wouldn't have seen the South African story, although it was covered in some of the international press. And although it's a local story, as I had said to my producer Abel, it is a story that has underlying universal themes because the war on the bodies and the war against the bodies of women and girls in particular play out across the world. And so I'm going to voice what I had written without comment beyond voicing it exactly as I had written this essay, which was entitled, for those who want to seek it out online, Outrage about rape must be accompanied by action. Here's what we might do. You can find it by going to timeslive.co.za. And this is what I had meditated on in that essay. And I'm going to voice it verbatim. The ongoing war on women's bodies makes our country one of the most violent geographies outside war zones. The multiple causes and factors that account for this despicable reality make it hard to imagine a pathway to peace, justice and gender equality. Yet we dare not despair. Expressing outrage is necessary as an indication that our moral compasses are sort of still working. But expressing outrage is insufficient because it requires being accompanied with action aimed at ending the war to be most purposeful. Affect, without material change, isn't enough. The violation of women's rights to dignity, bodily autonomy and equality demand we take seriously our collective moral imperative to imagine, design and forge a way out of the rape hell. This has many dimensions from the ways in which we speak about rape, posing uncomfortable questions framed in the first person, about personal culpability and working to eliminate the structural drivers 
of violent crime, which includes looking at institutional responses to structural violence, specifically how we respond to rape. South Africa's Minister of Police, Becky Tvele, in his latest public performance of mediocrity and callousness, while describing the gang rape of eight women in Krugersdorp recently, told the newscaster most of the victims were raped by more than one man, but that one young woman was, quote, lucky to be raped by one man. The subtext and implication of this remark is that she was only raped by one man. He attempted, with characteristic clumsiness, to retract his remark by adding parenthetical words to the effect of, if it is lucky. But he had already revealed by then, through his unconscious commentary, an horrific feature of rape culture in our country, that we grade victims and survivors of rape by imagining some instances as more shocking than others. It is important to meditate on why speaking about rape in this way is not just deeply shocking in that it trivializes the gross violation, but also because this sort of speech creates a social context within which rapists can feel licensed to act without fear of reprisal. Rape is so common in our country that we tend only to be shocked if a report of rape includes detail that is more gruesome and gratuitous than what we have read and heard about multiple times. It is almost as if we are immune to the horror of sexual violence in general and so require a novel feature to a case before it gets our blood boiling again. This speaks to the normalization of sexual crimes, a development which renders our nominal assertion of the foundational values in our constitution, dignity, freedom and equality, scandalously theoretical. Oyinene Mkhwetiana, a student at the University of Cape Town, was raped and murdered in August 2019 in that city. It is difficult to admit this to ourselves, but that she was raped by itself was not the total basis of our strong moral reaction to this vile crime. Nor that she was murdered. We ought to be enraged by any attack on another person, let alone rape and murder. No further detail is necessary to occasion our moral outrage. But I would venture to suggest we were particularly shocked that Mkhwetiana was raped and murdered in a post office in Claremont. The space and place where the crimes happened jolted many of us out of our complacency. It pierced our immunity to being further shocked by stories of sexual crimes. A post office is supposed to be a safe public space reserved for mundane administrative actions such as fetching a parcel. Had she been raped and murdered in her home, I dare ask us to answer honestly. Would our responses have been as voluminous, as visceral? We have normalized stories about women dying in domestic spaces, particularly at the hands of men with whom they are familiar. In other words, we have created inadvertently hierarchies of rape and murder. Some rapes are regarded as more rage-worthy than others. The ways in which we speak about rape can and invariably do become 
our material social realities. Some words are useful, but many that are spoken are dangerous contributions to a culture of rape. This is the problematic social context within which Chele's remarks must be placed. If we speak as if being raped multiple times by different men is a type of new gold standard of violation, then we will slowly develop a casual disconnect with victims whose experiences of violation do not fit the template of what is required for national interest to be taken in their story. We will find ourselves, if we continue unthinkingly speaking in those registers, back to a time, and maybe that time is the present, when some men think of some sexual violations as gentle and innocuous, as if the law is just annoyingly anti-male, anti-sex and anti-fun. For someone within the criminal justice cluster, a minister of police no less, to show no appreciation of these elementary features of rape culture tells you everything you need to know about the state's lack of commitment to gender justice. If the state truly cared about it, someone such as Tele would not occupy the critically important position he holds. By keeping him as his preferred minister of police, President Saro Ramaphosa signals to us that his commitment to effective law enforcement is merely rhetorical. This is not only about language, which leads to social realities that enable and sustain rape culture. Our government also thinks badly about the requisite policy responses to the scourge. The governing ANC's Subcommittee on Social Transformation, for example, has proposed the chemical castration of rapists. The idea is essentially to lower hormones like testosterone in a rapist so they might not sexually be aroused again or are less likely, presumably, to get an erection and also maybe have little to no further interest in sex. This might seem, if you do not bother to think carefully about rape, like a solution with two possible benefits. First, it is an act of retribution on behalf of victims and survivors. The bastard will never again enjoy sex. And, maybe more importantly and more optimistically, second, a deterrent from committing rape, which will make essay safer for girls and women. But regardless of the good intentions behind this policy, it is a merely populist idea with no rational connection between the mechanism, chemical castration, and the goal, reduced incidence of sex crimes. Rape is not essentially about sex. It is an exertion of power. Sex is incidental to the gross criminal exertion thereof. This is why our law on sexual crimes expanded correctly to define rape in terms that are not restricted to genitalia. You can rightly be found guilty of rape if you penetrated someone with any object or a body part other than a penis. The penis is just one biological object with which a rapist commits their heinous crime. Chemical castration does not target this fact about rape. A rapist doesn't need an erection to commit rape. So there's no reason to be confident that the toxic masculinities that result in rape culture will be neutralized by chemically castrating rapists. Solutions must not only feel 
like an acceptable expression of moral disapproval, which is what vengeance or retribution is about. If we want safe communities, then we better choose solutions that create safer spaces. Broken, toxic, unhealthy men are a danger to ourselves and to women and girls. That is what we should focus on repairing rather than punting a populist idea that will not work while appearing as if government is tough on crimes. It is a political gimmick, a substitute for the hard work of effective law enforcement and of raising a different type of boy, one who does not become a rapist. Bluntly put, even with lower levels of testosterone in our bodies, we will attack women if the reasons we hate girls, women, and ourselves as men are not addressed. The ANC's Social Transformation Committee is not thinking clearly. In the past week, I searched long and hard for evidence that there is, in some places, a clear and unambiguous link between chemical castration and lower levels of sexual crimes. There isn't. Besides, how many times must criminologists point out that potential criminals in SA are not scared of harsh punishment, but rather worry about whether they will be arrested and charged for crimes in the first instance? This is an important insight. It means the ministry clearly is running badly is more important to our chances of creating safe spaces than reforming the law to include chemical castration. Policing is so ineffective in South Africa that a criminal will take a chance and commit rape even if chemical castration awaits them because they will rationally believe the odds of being arrested and convicted are very low. It is the police that fail South African women more obviously than our judicial officers when it comes to the value chain of justice. But beyond policing and debate about penal codes and policy reform, we need to think about the more difficult social drivers and factors that explain our rape culture. As tiring as it is for many of us to revisit certain frameworks that seem to put each of us on trial, it is not untrue to suggest many of us are personally implicated in rape culture. How often do we self-police language and non-jokes that result in victim-blaming? How often do you call out friends and peers? How often do you choose silence when a fave is implicated in violence? How often do you check yourself when scolding a little boy in your family for showing emotion, for crying, for being vulnerable? How often do you prop up the idea that hashtag Indora must fulfill certain social roles and leave them feeling pathetic when they fall short? In our homes, schools, sporting communities, social clubs, religious and other communities, we must do the hard long-term work of giving psychic and social permission to boys and men to recover their humanities. We must role model different and healthier ways of being a male without letting the state over the hook. Chela must go. We must take personal and collective responsibility for our country being held for women. <laughs>